Marketing Week Meets, sponsored by Salesforce's intelligent one-to-one customer journeys. Helping you achieve higher revenue, happier customers, and lower costs. Hello and welcome to Marketing Week Meets, a monthly podcast in which we speak to a marketing luminary about their life, career and thoughts on the state of the marketing universe. Our criteria for interview subjects is this, people who have made a mark in marketing and of course have an opinion or two. Our guest on this podcast ticks both of those boxes. Scott Galloway is an academic, author and entrepreneur. He's also one of the world's best-known and respected voices on modern marketing. He started his post-university career as an investment banker at Morgan Stanley. After, and I quote, an unremarkable stint in high finance, he returned to study at Berkeley's Haas School of Business, where he was taught brand strategy by the legendary David Aker. It was whilst there he started his first business, Strategy Consultancy Profit, which he later sold to Dentsu. And so began a series of entrepreneurial endeavours. With, and I quote him again, the winds of processing power and the internet at his back, he launched Red Envelope, one of the first e-commerce sites, and business intelligence firm L2, which he sold to Gartner in 2015. He's also a professor of marketing, teaching at NYU Stern Business School, and now an author. His first book, published in 2017, The Four, was a dissection of the rise and rise of tech giants Google, Facebook, Amazon and Apple. His latest, The Algebra of Happiness, is fashioned to help with the pursuit of the ultimate, success, love and the meaning of it all. Welcome, Scott. Thank you. Uh, in the book, The Algebra of Happiness, um, you very easily describe yourself as unremarkable and, and even undisciplined as a young man. Yet what have you done, what, what you have done in your career, becoming a professor, launching successful businesses and writing a couple of books, I think most people would probably identify that as remarkable. If there was one characteristic that you would say defines that uh, success, uh, what would you say it is? Uh, the blessing of being born in uh, uh, California, where there was state-sponsored education, it's easy to credit your, you know, your grit and your character for your success. Um, I have no such delusions. State-sponsored education uh, is the reason I'm here speaking to you right now. I was uh, an unremarkable kid. That's not a humble brag. I, was, I had mediocre grades, but didn't test well, and in California in the 80s, there was the University of California, which was largely, you know, essentially free education that no longer exists. But it gave me, I would say, gave an unremarkable kid remarkable opportunities and started sort of an upward spiral. But I just never would have had the opportunities that eventually I kind of grew into had it not been for state-sponsored education. So in sum, state-sponsored education. One of my favorite passages in the uh, in the book um, is your description of a, a letter that you wrote to UCLA admissions that I'm going to just read out. Uh, I am a native son of California raised by an immigrant single mother who is a secretary and if you don't let me in I'm going to be installing shelving for the rest of my life which was successful. They did admit you after that I think at the second time of asking. Yeah, it's it's uh, the truth has a nice ring to it. My parents, my father immigrated from Scotland, my mother England, and both were uh, left school at the age of thirteen. And my father had secured me a job installing shelving at eighteen bucks an hour, which felt like a lot of money at the time. And I didn't have the confidence nor the grades to go somewhere where I couldn't live at home. 
uh, and I didn't have the, quite frankly, we just didn't have the resources. So it was either UCLA or shelving. And uh, I initially got rejected from UCLA and found out there's an appeal process. I appealed and said, it's either this or or shelving. And they called me, I think it was nine days before school started and said, you're not qualified, but you're a native son and we're letting you in. And so that was probably, if I were to distill, you know, two reasons for my success are the irrational passion for my well-being and my mother and the generosity of, of the University of California, Los Angeles, letting me in. You talk about uh, your mother quite a lot in the book, and I think on your Twitter profile it's, uh, it says you're the son of a superhero, bracket single mother. Forgive me if I've got that slightly wrong. What um, Clearly she played a big part in your upbringing and your life subsequently. Oh, sure, and I think all of us, uh, uh, you know, our parents are, and oftentimes our mom is sort of that singular investment. And I talk about in the book that in the world of finance and business school we talk about the power of making uh, small investments uh, in yourself or saving a small amount of money when you're young and the power of compound interest. And I think that when you think about relationships over time, uh, the small investments you make in relationships are are insignificant and then you wake up one day and you have what is a meaningful relationship. And most people in research would identify the relationship with their mother as being somewhat singular. And I think that's a function of one, instinct, but two, most people's moms make you know hundreds or thousands of little investments in your well-being as you grow up, and uh, you, you know that relationship is singular. That that amount and that return in terms of the you know the kind of the the mother-son or the mother-daughter relationship is singular. And you know I don't know I don't know much about your background, but my family it was basically me and my mom against the world. I didn't have any siblings, uh, and you know raised me on a secretary salary. But it's not a sob story. We had a really a household full of laughter and. And discipline, and and uh, it was a nice a nice place to grow up. And one of the things about America that I'm worried about is a secretary could raise her son in a middle class lifestyle and give that kid remarkable opportunities, and we had a nice life. And I wonder if that same those same opportunities exist for single immigrant mothers in the United States now. I don't know if it turns out as well. I don't know if those households are as healthy, as prosperous uh, as they could be back in the 70s and 80s. So. You know, I'm sort of uh, part of the book, uh, or, or my concerns in the book, and what I talk about is that we like to think that as time moves on, things get better. And at least in the U.S., I worry that for our demographic or the situation we're in, if you look at uh, households that have the same kind of complexion, I worry that it's much harder for them than it was for me and my mom back then. And are you talking about the specter of Trump and the anti-immigration policy and message that's emanating from the current White House? I think it's it, that's some of it, but I don't think we can lay all of it at the feet of the Trump administration. This has been, kind of been a slow boil, and that is uh, there's several factors. One is I think as a nation we've kind of fallen out of love with the unremarkables, and that is we've slowly but surely moved to a lottery economy where if somebody makes the jump to light speed and becomes wealthy, we double down on their wealth and we lower their taxes. We actually have a regressive tax policy now in the U.S. where the top 1% pay a lower tax rate than the the 99% below them. We have an environment in academia, and I'm guilty of this as an academic, where we no longer think of ourselves as public servants, but as luxury goods. And we have raised prices faster than inflation. We've made it out of reach for a lot of people or forced young people to take on so much debt in the US, where student loan debt is now greater than credit card debt, where they're forming households later, having children later, less likely to start a business, less likely to buy a home, and we've sort of become drunk in the U.S., at least universities, on exclusivity, where uh, an organization or a university like Stanford 
uh, has triple the applicants it did when I was applying 30 years ago, but has not increased its freshman class one seat because we all take huge pride in the fact that we can say 90% of the applicants have been rejected this year, which I think is tantamount to a homeless shelter bragging that it turned away 90% of the people who showed up there. So I think it's a confluence of factors. In the U.S., we seem to have no longer worship at the altar of character and kindness, but of, of tech billionaires and innovators. And we seem to have sort of doubled down on this lottery economy. And the end of World War II, we uh, had a Marshall Plan to reinvest in war-torn nations and make them our allies. I think in Europe, there's a tremendous uh, investment in infrastructure, which benefits everybody. In the U.S., it seems as if over the last 10 or 20 years, we've had a Marshall Plan, and that is to massively invest in wealthy people and sort of to double down on them. And I would argue that uh, it's never been a better time to be remarkable but it's never been a worse time to just be good in the U.S. And unfortunately, the majority of us are in the bottom 99%. As a matter of fact, 99% of us are in the bottom 99%. And I think it's dangerous uh, that we have, if you will, and I go back to the thing, we've fallen out of love with the unremarkable. So you, the U.S. used to be the best place in the world to be good. Uh, now it, in the U.S., it's never been easier to be a billionaire, but it's never been harder to be a millionaire. We used to create millions of households worth millions of dollars. Now it seems our collective goal is to crown the first trillionaire. You, whilst at business school, founded Profit, uh, which seemed like a pretty, well, it seems to me reading about it anyway, a quite a ballsy thing to do for somebody so young in their life and their career. Um, I just wondered if I could take you back there and, and, and if you could talk me through how that came to be and whether or not you thought it was an unusual, unremarkable, a, a remarkable move even at the time. So I, I think we have a tendency in the media to romanticize entrepreneurs. And uh, my entrepreneurship was a function not of special skills I had, but skills I didn't have. I got a job at Morgan Stanley, this bulge bracket, uh, you know, fairly prestigious investment bank right out of UCLA. And I wasn't very good at it. And quite frankly, I didn't have the skills to be successful at a big organization. You, you know, We have a tendency to think that Big organizations are not romantic, great places. The, the reality is in, in democracies and capitalist democracies, one of the greatest inventions is the, the platform afforded by big companies. Big companies have usually good benefits. They're great platforms. They usually invest in their people. They can be exceptional places to advance your career and develop economic security for you and your family. I didn't have the skills to be successful in a large organization. I was too insecure. Every time people went into a conference room, I assumed they were talking about me. I was constantly had my measuring stick out, and anybody who I felt was less talented or working less hard than me, I resented if they were my boss and making more money than me. And there's a certain amount of BS and bureaucracy you have to put up with for those wonderful things you get from a big company. And I didn't have the skills or the confidence to navigate those things. So starting a business, if you will, wasn't a function of special skills I had. It was a function of trying to deal with some of the insecurities and skills I didn't have. And I think that's true of most entrepreneurs. Uh, most entrepreneurs in the U.S. are typically immigrants that don't have access to kind of the corporate world. They're not, they don't have access, to, they don't have the opportunities to go to work for Ford or Accenture or Google. So they start their own businesses. I don't want to say out of desperation, but the people we immediately assume conflate entrepreneurship with incremental skills and leadership and vision because those are the stories we talk about. We talk about Tesla. We talk about the people starting the company in their garage. But the reality is most of us who start businesses do it because we don't have access to the corporate world. And in my case, I didn't have the skills. So starting a company... I get a lot of credit for it. It was very rewarding. It was also very stressful. 
But I wouldn't argue that it was a function of special skills or vision or leadership. It, for me, it was literally a defense mechanism. And it worked out really well. Uh, you know, but again, the media points to my successes. I've started several businesses, and most have failed. Uh, but in, in, in the U.S., and one of the wonderful things about the U.S., and I think this is less true in Europe. I do think this is an exceptional quality about the U.S. They say that the United States embraces failure. That's not true. We don't embrace failure. But we tolerate failure here as well or better than any society. You don't have a scarlet letter on your chest if you have a business fail. You can typically raise money and start again. Now, it's easier to start another company and raise money if the first one was a success. But I think in almost any other culture, I've started nine businesses, and I'm sort of generously kind of, I would call it, you know, kind of three, three, two, and four. I've had sort of four mediocre outcomes. I've had two crash and burns, and I've had three arguable successes. I don't think most societies would, would tolerate me. I don't think after several failures and several ties, I'd be able to go out and start a new business every five to 10 years. So uh, I think the U.S. is exceptional that way, but I don't, I don't take any kind of what I'll say. I don't think I deserve any you know, cr- uh, character points for having started starting a business. For me, it was, a, again, a defense mechanism. For the three that you identified as successes, is there anything that you did that drove that success? Or was it just serendipity or circumstance, right time, right place? So it's, it's, unfortunately, it's more the latter. And that is that, and I think this is a key component. And, that, and one of the things in the book is that nothing's ever as good or as bad as it seems. And also that market dynamics trump individual performance. So let's talk about market dynamics. If I look back on the companies that were successful and not successful, the only piece of data I can find that would indicate their success or lack thereof was when I started the firm. Specifically, starting a firm in the midst or coming out of a recession is the best time to start a company because office space and people are inexpensive. Uh, Coming out of a recession, you have economic growth and you not only have the wind at your back, but you have organizations willing to try new things and different things. In boom times, People have more money, but they're not as inclined to try something new. It's much more expensive to hire people. You're hiring mediocre programmers for a lot of money. Office space is expensive. You imprint this DNA of expense on the organization early. Uh, It's easy to enter into consensual hallucination with the market that what you're doing is working, whereas if you start something in a recession, if it works, you know you're on to something. So the, the companies I've started that have worked have actually typically been started in recessions are just coming out of them. And the companies that failed were started in boom times when it was easy to raise money, but everything was expensive and it was difficult to find good people because they had better, you know, they had great opportunities and were staying where they were. So it's, it's one, it, the macro environment is very important. And two, you know, the, the key to being a great entrepreneur, there's really two things. One, entrepreneur is Latin for selling. You're selling investors, you're selling people to join your firm, you're selling clients. You have to be comfortable selling if you want to be an entrepreneur and you have to be pretty good at it. And then the second thing is your ability to attract and retain uh, talented people. Uh, Agency or greatness is in the agency of others. So your ability to create an environment where you you convince good people that if you win, they're going to win as well and hold on to key people. And every organization I've started that's that's one, if you will, I can point to a small group of people who are just incredibly talented. And I've always said my kind of only skill is the ability to find those people and then retain them. So market dynamics are hugely important. And then your job as a CEO is to sell and to be the chief talent officer, and that's to find and retain great people. 
you know, that one of the sayings I have in the book is nothing is ever as good or as bad as it seems. And that is when you have success, you have to realize it's not entirely your fault that you got lucky. And then when you have failure, you also have to realize that it's not entirely your fault either. That, again, market dynamics trump individual performance. And that, is a, that has helped me a lot because I've had, you know, I'm starting a business right now and it's really stressful. And I'm back again, staring at the ceiling, worried about the bad decisions I've made. And what gives me some comfort is to recognize that in the moment, everything is much more stressful and much more disappointing than it actually is. When seniors are queried on the piece of advice they would give their younger selves, the one piece of advice they would give their younger selves is they wish they'd been less hard on themselves. And that is you do your best, but at the end of the day, there's a lot of factors at play here. And when you move forward, the disappointments will seem less disappointing looking back on them. And also the victories, you need to be more humble about them. You need to realize even when you're killing it, it's not entirely your fault. You've gotten lucky. And to kind of take your horns in and be a little bit humble and realize that, okay, yes, you're good at what you do, but you also got lucky. So again, nothing's ever as good or as bad as it seems is something that's been you know, a real source of comfort for me. And I think if I was to take away one thing from reading the book, it would be that nothing is as bad or as good as it seems. However, on in most cases, in most reading that I've done, inspirational books towards business success, etc., people tend to recommend that you over-index on the successes. You focus on what worked, why it worked, celebrate that success. Was that deliberate in writing this book to make sure people had that balance between success and failure? Did you want to address some of those? Well, success success has many fathers and failure is an orphan. And media doesn't talk about the six out of seven small businesses that fail. Media doesn't talk about, you know, losing other people's money. It doesn't talk about, um, you know, I had one business. The, the best thing that can happen is success. Uh, the next best thing is to fail fast. The worst things that have happened to me as an entrepreneur is to fail slowly. So there's all this, you know, there's all these cliches that come from, at, at, at business school at Stern, we invite two types of people to speak, really interesting people who've done incredibly interesting things or billionaires. In the U.S., we've decided anyone who achieves a billion dollars in net worth is wise and should impart their wisdom on young people. And some of the advice they give, things like never give up, okay, that's BS. At some point, you need to move on and realize that perseverance alone doesn't make a business. So there's a myth that if you keep trying, eventually you'll get there. No, sometimes you need to take stock of the idea and the organization and decide maybe this isn't working and move on. And then the worst piece of advice they give the kids is follow your passion. That's the one you hear all the time. And I always say that someone who tells you to follow your passion is already rich. And typically the guy on stage telling you to follow your passion made his money in iron ore smelting or software as a service for healthcare maintenance workers. The notion that following your passion is always going to work out, I just think is terrible advice. And I think a young person's job is to find something they're good at and then to invest the requisite thousands of hours, perseverance, endurance, overcoming BS, and the hard work of work to become great at it. And once you're great at something, regardless of what it is, the accoutrements of being great, economic security, relevance, pride, prestige, will make you passionate about whatever it is. So very few kids grow up passionate about tax law. But people who are great at tax law get to fashion remarkable lives for themselves, get to marry people more interesting and better looking than them, and get to do interesting things. 
And that makes them passionate about tax law. So your job as a young person is not to follow your passion. It's to find something you're good at. And I think we get terrible advice from successful people who rub Vaseline over the lens of how they got there. I am smiling uh, listening to you because I'm imagining various TED Talks and other speakers that I've heard imparting that very piece of advice to follow your passion. I suppose, though, if you can find something that you're good at, that you're passionate about and invest in that, there's three boxes that will lead to even more success and more happiness. Well, look, it, you know, it'd be great to be David Beckham or Jay-Z. And they followed their passion and they're billionaires. Assume you are not David Beckham. And if you are, let me put it this way. You should know by the time you're 25, if you have those extraordinary skills to break through in what I would call a passion field, Uh, entertainment, acting, sports. Some people are very passionate about opening a restaurant. And I I don't want to sort of crush people's dreams and tell them not to pursue that. But acknowledge up front that if you go into what I'd call a passion field, that similar to any asset class, those fields are overinvested. Everybody wants to play midfielder. Everybody wants to open a nightclub. Everybody wants to go to work for Vogue. And if you want to be in sports, you want to be in entertainment, you want to be in music, you want to be in food, you want to be in nightlife, just recognize you better get a lot of psychic income. Because on a risk-adjusted basis, your efforts will be less well-compensated than if you go into a non-passion field. And you also have to have an honest conversation with yourself that in the passion fields, the unemployment rate is 99%. 99% of actors don't make a living acting. 99% of athletes never make enough money to support themselves and their families. So I just think you have to have an honest conversation with yourself early on. Am I in the weight class to make a living in a passion field? If not, find something you're good at. I was a mediocre athlete, but I played sports in college, and I, I lived with some exceptional athletes who even went on to the Olympics. And quite frankly, it was a blessing that I wasn't a good athlete because I got onto the, to the, to the world of making money and business sooner than them. And most of them were, even if they got a bronze medal at the Seoul Olympics, they were starting their lives later. So... Yeah, if you're David Beckham, if you're Jay-Z, by all means, knock yourself out. But for the majority of us, we need to get to something we're good at. That's the key. Find something you're good at. And I promise you, once you get great at it, you'll get passionate about it. Marketing Week Meets, sponsored by Salesforce, helping you to connect to your customers in a whole new way. We've mentioned your book on a couple of occasions already, The Algebra of Happiness, The Pursuit of Success, Love and What It All Means. For the benefit of those listening, how did the book come about? So uh, my process for writing a book is simple. I teach a course at NYU Stern. I've taught about 4,500 students at this point. Their average age is 27. They're remarkable uh, young men and women who have several years of work experience and then go back to get a master's in business administration. And the second most popular session is a class I do called The Four, where I break down Amazon, Apple, Facebook, and Google and their power and the underpinnings of their success and uh, turn that into a video. The video got a million views, wrote a book, the book did well. And the most popular session is the last one, and it's called The Algebra of Happiness, where I take observations on what I call best practices uh, that distinguish the people I know who are successful and happy and those that are also successful but not as happy. And then trying to distill it down to a series of equations that inform best and worst practices around achieving an arc of satisfaction. Happiness is a, actually a bit of a misnomer. Happiness is a sensation you can get from Chipotle, Netflix, or Cialis. 
I'm talking about satisfaction, and that is how do you create an arc? How do you make little investments? How do you foster a career and relationships such that when you're towards the end of your life, you feel as if you could really drop the mic? And I go through this class. It's my most popular class. Did a video. The video got 2 million views. Boom, book. And uh, the book came out uh, last month. It's um, an honest book, if you don't mind me saying. There is um, a lot of quite pointed observations from you, which I think is what sets it apart from a lot of similar books. Um, dare I say that it could describe them as self-help books. Um, you talk about it, I suppose, you mentioned in the book that it, it, it also stemmed as well as that uh, classic business school from a blog that you write, which was your attempt at perhaps coping with the depression that you also talk about in the book. Um, I just wondered uh, if you could perhaps share uh, your experiences of depression and how perhaps this book, that blog, has helped. Sure. So, uh, so I struggle, as you reference, I struggle with what I call mild depression and anger. And my sister summarized it or distilled it perfectly. I speak to her every Sunday night, and she said uh, about two years ago, she said to me, stop me mid-sentence where I was complaining. I said, she said, Scott, why are you so pissed off all the time? You have less justification to be pissed off than anyone I know, and I decided that I needed to figure out a series of behaviors and best practices to try and get my mood to foot to my blessings, and they don't. I am angry all the time, pissed off all the time, disappointed far more than I should be in myself and other people, and recognize that uh, that, that just it, that is just there's no excuse for that. And so this has been sort of a personal journey around how to manage that and just get more reward from the wonderful blessings I have. And uh, for me, talking about it in a very open, honest, and unvarnished way is very helpful. And it also creates uh, what is really rewarding. It creates bonds with other people. Uh, we're all, you know, or I would say not we're all, most of us are struggling uh, and with something. And it's good to talk about it. It's good to talk about the most important things in our lives, and that's relationships. And I find people are very receptive to it. So it's been a you know, journey of personal discovery to kind of manage my own struggles. And I find when you're open and honest about it, people really respond. And you hear from people you had no idea were struggling with some of the same things. And it creates a certain level of intimacy and friendships and bonds with people that has been very rewarding. You know, and to a certain extent, it's a, just a form of talk therapy, which I think is uh, – seen as even uh, superior to pharmaceutical intervention. And I want to be clear, when I say I'm depressed and angry, I, I don't suffer from what I would call true clinical depression that requires outside intervention. Uh, but it is something I'm aware of. And I think all of us have to take stock of our lives. And if you live in a place like Britain and you host a podcast, I'm going to guess you are blessed. I'm going to guess on a scale of 1 to 100, looking at the entire global population, you're somewhere between 99 and 99.9 .9 in terms of your blessings. And it's a worthwhile question to say, does my gratitude, does my mood, does my recognition of my blessings, does that foot to that good fortune? And if it doesn't, I think spending some time understanding best practices around happiness and ensuring that your mood and your opportunities foot to your blessings, I think it's a worthwhile practice. Referring back to your first book, The Four, you speak and have spoken subsequently about the dangers of the massive empires of the four, which are Facebook, Google, Amazon, and Apple. What, I mean, you've talked about how they manipulate emotions and, and they're a threat to democracy. So what's the answer? Um, what would you like to see done uh, 
with those companies perhaps to change and to address some of these big issues? So I think a lot of the problems, not all of them, but a lot of them get solved with a very capitalist uh, mechanism, and that is competition. And that is, I don't think Facebook has any incentive right now to behave well because they're effectively a monopoly. They control kind of two-thirds of all social media, if not more. Google controls 93% of search. So the ultimate strategy for them is to delay and deflect any concerns. So Europe finds Google, Europe finds Facebook uh, $3 billion. That is approximately seven days of, of income and seven weeks of cash flow. So what our governments are doing when they find companies for violating consent degrees, violating privacy, we issue them a parking ticket that is 50 cents on a parking meter that costs $100 every 15 minutes. And that is where incenting them to continue to break the law. Because if they can continue to delay and obfuscate and ignore consent degrees, ignore privacy concerns, ignore the requisite investments to ensure that these platforms aren't weaponized by bad actors that might pervert our elections, their job is to grow their earnings. They're doing their job. We need to add a zero to those fines and we need to break them up. Because if you break up Google and YouTube, for example, on the first corporate strategy meeting post the breakup, YouTube decides to go into text-based search and overnight we have a competitor in search, and Google decides to go into video, and overnight we have a competitor to YouTube. And I believe that one of those firms will raise their hand and say, as a means of differentiating our product or service, we're going to say to Procter & Gamble and Unilever and other big advertisers, we're going to make the requisite investments to ensure that teens do not see objectionable content. We're going to make the requisite investments to ensure that if the foreign intelligence arm of the Russian government cannot advertise. So I don't think these are – I think these things are absolutely addressable. Uh, the big tech has done a good job of convincing us that these problems are impossible. We're not talking about the realm of the impossible. We're talking about the realm of the profitable. If The Guardian and The New York Times can figure out a way not to be weaponized by the foreign intelligence arm of the Russian government, if they can figure out a way not to depress our teens with their content with $200 million a year in free cash flow, then Facebook can figure it out with $20 billion in free cash flow. But they've convinced us that these, these, these problems are insurmountable or that they're the only ones that can, that can fix these problems, so don't regulate them or break them up. We should absolutely go in and oxygenate the economy and break these companies up. America has a proud history of antitrust around the phone companies, the railroads, the aluminum companies, the oil companies. But for some reason, we just decided that these guys are different and they're not subject to the same scrutiny. I think we're seeing more scrutiny in Europe because you get less upside and all of the downside of social media. You get all of the weaponization, the job destruction, the monopoly abuse, but there aren't that many hospitals or universities named after Google or Facebook billionaires in Europe, which is stiff in the backbone of everyone from Marguerite Vestier to uh, members of parliament to the French government. So I almost feel like it's a reverse D-Day, and that is Europe is saving our ass and coming after these companies and saying, look, what's going on here isn't cool, it isn't kosher, and something needs to be done. Taking you back, I suppose, to when you were studying or the early part of your career, what was it about marketing? I, I mentioned at the beginning that you do obviously teach it at Stern. Uh, what was it about marketing that prompted your interest as a subject? It was an individual. Um, I went into investment banking because I thought it was cool and awesome and that it would impress people. Uh, I didn't know what it was. And like most 22-year-olds, I was just looking to kind of find something, anything. And I went back to business school 
and was inspired by this professor named David Ocker, who is considered sort of the father of modern brand management. And he talked about the intersection of quantitative and qualitative and the importance of yellow and these caterpillar heavy machinery that had been left by, behind in Europe. And people started to associate the reconstruction or the rebuilding of Europe with caterpillar and rebuilding societies and that how drinking, you know, driving a Range Rover made you feel more elegant and closer to closer to the to royalty and made you feel more prestigious. I mean, all these emotional intangibles that that could be associated with a basically a commodity product that resulted in above market margins and above market return on shareholders, which is fascinating to me. And I uh, got inspired by it. And my first firm, which I started in business school, was basically a consulting firm focused on uh, Professor Ocker's theory. So, uh, you know, it was just it, what everyone hopes happens to them happened to me in school and that I was inspired by a professor and, and certain thought leadership and it motivated me to pursue a career in that field. Is there anything in modern marketing that uh, gets your goat, winds you up? Is, is, is there a practice or a process or a misinterpretation that really winds you up? Well, there's, there's small things and there's big things. Right now, we're, we're undertaking in marketing what I'd call a tremendous amount of woke washing. And that is all these brands are discovering their woke views. It seems like every couple in a commercial is now same sex. And I get it, but it has nothing to do with principles. It has to do with economics. And that is while government's overrepresented by conservatives, the majority of the incremental gains in disposable income are going to uh, uh, progressive couples, non-traditional families living in cities who have college educations. And those people tend to skew more progressive. So as a result, when Nike endorses Colin Kaepernick, a controversial figure here, it's not a value-based move. It's a shareholder-based move. And that is $35 billion in top-line revenue, 20 of it outside of the U.S. Nobody outside of the U.S. thinks the U.S. has figured it out on race relations. $15 billion in the U.S. Two-thirds of that goes to people under the age of 35. If you're under the age of 35 and can afford a pair of $150 VaporMax Nike shoes, it means you're a Democrat. So the people who went on YouTube and burned their Nikes, I think were Republicans who use their Discover card to go buy their first pair of Nikes. It was a brilliant move. I think they strengthened their relationship with 32 or 33 of that $35 billion and potentially risked alienating $2 billion. And we're seeing it everywhere, whether it's Unilever and – I mean, everybody has just gone woke on us. And that kind of bothers me a little bit. I think it's disingenuous, but it's probably genius marketing. I don't know how long it's going to last. The most dangerous thing in marketing is that these uh, uh, algorithms – uh, f- uh, tapped into our tribal nature as a species and foment rage and are tearing apart the fabric of our society. The fastest way to get you engaged in a YouTube video is to serve videos along the right rail after they figure out you lean this way or lean another way. They get you angry and get you angrier and create confrontation. So there is no incentive for the algorithms to give you a balanced viewpoint. Their incentive is to figure out a way for you to click on the next video. And the way to do that is to enrage you and to get you angry at the other side. So if you're a conservative to serve you up videos of a liberal person looking stupid or being made a fool of and creating confrontation with other ideas and people. And these algorithms aren't malicious, but they're programmed by people whose 100% objective is to get you to watch more videos, watch more Chobani ads, and uh, increase earnings, and the wheel spins. So the most dangerous thing in marketing in our society is an algorithmically driven process to enrage us and divide us that creates shareholder value. A link between rage, division, and shareholder value 
is the most dangerous thing in our, in my opinion, in our society right now. And you could argue it's brought to us by the most successful marketers in the history of mankind, and that is Google and Facebook. Is there a, a marketer or a marketing organization that you would point to as as succeeding, somebody that you admire, past or present? That's a great question. So I would argue that, I mean, the people I admire aren't typically marketers. And this is strange as I teach a brand strategy course. But I think the sun has passed midday on what I would call the era of brand. And the era of brand was kind of World War II to the introduction of Google, take an average beer, shoe, sugary drinker car, and wrap these incredible associations of youth, European elegance, masculinity, hot, young, and figure out these brand codes and using this incredibly inexpensive and efficient vehicle called broadcast media, pound away at these associations. That if you drink Guinness, you're interesting and funny. If you drink Budweiser, you're hot and you're young. And if you buy this certain insurance, you're a good dad. And then get above market margins and print money stuff to channel and, and you know, Unilever P&G created trillions of dollars in market capitalization. Now we have these weapons of diligence that afford us the ability to bypass the brand. So when I come to London, I used to stay at the Four Seasons or the Ritz-Carlton because someone else was usually paying and because those companies always deliver a solid eight. But now I can go on to TripAdvisor. I can go on to, I can go on to my social graph. I can go on to Facebook. I can go on to Hotels Tonight. And I can see that the Firmdale Hotels, the Haymarket, are kind of more my kind of style. And I no longer need to defer to the shorthand of the brand. So whereas a brand was a bridge across the ocean of the unknown, I now have these weapons of incredible due diligence that replace brand. And we moved into what I would call the monopoly era, where all these platforms are trying to get to a certain amount of critical mass where they can dominate and kind of kill everybody else. But I don't say I don't I wouldn't think I have a lot of marketers I admire. I think the organizations like Nike are still incredible marketers. I think Apple's gangster move of opening stores when stores were going out of vogue was an incredible unlock. The people I admire are people who've lived out loud. You know, the Ruth Bader Ginsburgs of the world, the the Mother Teresas, the Muhammad Ali's that seem to live their life as if no one was looking and were just totally fearless, totally fearless. And you go back to that notion of, you know, you were being very polite. I expose a lot about myself in this book and some of it's embarrassing. But a recognition that you're going to be dead soon, it's going to go fast. And to not live out loud is to cheat yourself of something. People... People want to hear the truth. People want authenticity. So I, I can't immediately think of – I have a lot of role models, but they're not in marketing. My role models are people who were fearless and lived out loud and just weren't – you know, weren't – knew they were onto something and didn't worry about – I mean, I'll use a very basic example. If you've ever been to a club or I don't know if you go to Ibiza or where you vacation and you see someone who gets on the table and starts dancing, you see a seven-year-old uncle bust a move on the dance floor, and he's not a great dancer, but he's just loving himself and loving life and living out loud. I think we all want to do that across our personal and our professional professional lives, and that is to be fearless. So the people I admire uh, and I try to emulate are the people who just kind of lived out loud, if you will. What a wonderful way to think about success and achievement and a nice way to finish our podcast today. Thank you, Scott Galloway. You're welcome. 
You have been listening to Marketing Week Meet, sponsored by Salesforce and produced by Bauer London Creative, with me, Russell Parsons, and producer Tim O'Donoghue. You can listen again to previous episodes by subscribing via iTunes or SoundCloud, where you'll hear interviews with the likes of Julia Golden, the CMO of Lego, Sil Saller, the CMO of Diageo, and Byron Sharp. Until next time, goodbye. Marketing Week Meets, sponsored by Salesforce's intelligent one-to-one customer journeys, helping you achieve higher revenue, happier customers, and lower costs.